Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Thank you, ladies, for using the ones the Lord gave you to minister to us. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, if you would. Mark chapter 13. We all like to know things before they happen, don't we? I would guess every phone in here this morning has a weather app on it, and you look at the forecast, and of course we complain when they miss it, as if it is somehow a perfect uh, representation of exactly what's going to take place. As you know, the stock market can swing wide, uh, wildly at future predictions from certain S, uh, experts. The Federal Reserve can make, uh, uh, make one comment and send the markets spinning. On less serious matters, there, there's hours and hours of sports programming, prognosticating who is going to win the season before it ever starts. And while people spend hours listening to people guessing about things, talking heads, guessing about things, very few listen to the Bible. And the Bible rightly interprets all reality, past, present, and future, because its author is God. And He knows all things, past, present, and future. And He cannot lie. Let God be true and every, every man be a, a liar, His his callings are um, irrevocable. He makes promises that he keeps. And the Bible tells us who he is, how we can be right with him, and it also tells us what is coming in the, in the future. I don't mean Nostradamus and fortune cookie kind of nonsense. You'll meet a tall, dark stranger somewhere, and then you walk around the rest of the day looking for somebody with dark hair. The Bible foretells what will come to pass in explicit detail and absolute accuracy. And that's what we have before us today in Mark 13. Jesus has just spent the final day of public teaching. And his final message that he gives in public teaching is a warning about the kind of religion that God condemns. After watching this apostate system in, in action... And, and, and watching it take the last two coins of a poor widow, Jesus condemns its leaders, the system, and the entire structure and says even the temple itself is, is coming down. It's self-righteous, it's abusive of others, and it's void of God. And, and he tells the disciples as they're marveling over the beauty of the temple, there's not, going to, there's, there's not one stone that you're looking at that's not going to be, to be overturned. And this prophecy leads the disciples to ask some, some very direct and, and reasonable, I think reasonable questions to, to the Lord. I mean, the disciples knew God not only promised the Messiah, they're following the Messiah. They also knew that God had promised the kingdom to Israel, and that kingdom was going to have a temple, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so here's Jesus, he's the Messiah, and they expected him to bring the kingdom any moment, any day, that's... They're probably thinking that's why they're in Jerusalem. And now Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed. And that prompts the questions in chapter 13 in verse 4. Look, if you would, at verse 4, the disciples ask two questions. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? When? 
and what will be the sign? And then Jesus gives the longest answer in the Bible to, to any question that he gives, direct, direct commentary. And he describes to the disciples exactly what to expect in the present. That's what we looked at last time. That's from verse 3 through verse 13. He tells them what is coming in the future. That's what we're going to see today. That begins in verse 14 through verse 23 that Michael read for us. And then in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 37, is his second coming. Jesus begins by correcting the disciples' chronology. He doesn't correct their eschatology. He doesn't say there's no kingdom for Israel. He doesn't say there's no literal kingdom. He doesn't say the church replaced Israel. He, cor- he corrects their chronology. He says it's not yet. It's, it's coming, but it's, it's not yet. And he describes what life is going to be like between his first and second coming. In verse 7, he says it's not the end yet. In verse 8, he says these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. And in verse 13, he talks about enduring to the end, the end of the age, the end of the age between the first and second coming of Christ. So all of those are time references, and they all say the same thing we saw last week. It's not coming yet. The earth is going to continue just as it did since the fall with wars and catastrophes and killings and all of the other things that, that the curse brought to, brought to the earth. Today, though, he's going to, to turn the page and, and he's going to go over the on-ramp, if you will, to the end. Um, and it's not metered. I mean, it's coming and it's coming fast. And then that's going to lead you right into the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. Now, now you can imagine if you're the disciples, you expect a Messiah, you expect a kingdom, and you expect a temple... Two of your three expectations have just been jettisoned by the Lord. He just wrecked you. Two of the three, you're off on. And the, the temple's going to be destroyed and the kingdom is not coming yet. That's what he tells them. And Jesus says the kingdom is coming, but there's this pause. It's going to continue as it was since the fall and get worse and worse until this final period of increased difficulty called the tribulation period, and then he's going to come. I hope that you understand things are not going to get any better. If you're waiting for uh, utopia or the whatever it is, is the, I heard MacArthur a week or so ago talk about the age of Aquarius for you who are dated to that, that, that song. It's not coming, okay? It, evolution is, is not moving us toward a toward a better society. Even with all the scientific and technological advances, man is simply more a more technological sinner. In fact, we use the technology that we have to commit even greater sin. It doesn't change our heart. With all the advancements, morality is not advancing, is it? And while man isn't changing, we're waiting for events that will change everything. And, and that's that's what we have in front of us today. God tells us what what we're to be doing while we're waiting. It's not yet, so Jesus tells us to beware of counterfeits. There's going to be false prophets in the world, false teachers. We're not to be frightened by the hardships. It's going to be hard. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. We're to be aware that there's opposition. Persecution's going to come. Brother's going to turn on brother. We looked at that. And you're to be busy witnessing. The gospel is to be proclaimed to all the nations. Because all of those things are going to happen between the first and second coming. 
And you really don't have to hunt very hard with for application in this in this passage. The, the real question is not where's the application. The real question is, are you applying it? You, you heard about the the pastor, the new pastor, who preached the same sermon three Sundays in a row, and the church began to to wonder, get concerned. Maybe he only had one sermon, and so they finally asked him, and he said, "I have hundreds of them, and I'll preach another one right after you obey this one." Application is the same way. We we often say we want more of it when we don't obey the application we already have, right? Well, here's plenty of application for us and, and plenty of foretelling of exactly what's going to take place. And Jesus gives future signs for tribulation saints. The church, I do not believe that the Bible teaches, I do not believe the Bible teaches the church is going to be here during this time, but we have a responsibility in preparation for that time. These are future signs for tribulation saints. These will be believers, as you'll see, in travail. There will be believers during this time of great travail and difficulty. And Jesus discloses the future. He discloses the the prophetic evidence that it's here in verse 14, the very first verse. He discloses the urgent advice when it comes. What do you do if you're a believer and, and you're left behind in the, in the tribulation period? In verses 14 through 18, he, he talks about the unique experience. How will you know that it's here? There's a uniqueness to the tribulation. And then he talks about the faithful preparation for its, for its arrival. And that's the, the verses that are in, in front of us. Let's look at the first one. There's prophetic evidence that it's, that it's here. And in the very first verse, Jesus names a prophetic event. He specifies a polluting period, and then he identifies a prospective group that he's speaking to, all in this very first verse. Look, if you would, at verse 14. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, Jesus is seated opposite the temple in the olive groves, and he says it's not now, but then he says, but when you see the desecration of the temple spoken of by Daniel the prophet, when you see that, something ominous is upon you. It's something new. It is something very different than the wars and rumors of wars and and, and the calamities that, that happen because of the curse. In verse 5, Jesus says, See to it that no one misleads you. This is not the end. In verse 14, he says, When you see future things, something future, then it's, it's upon you. It's, it's right at the door. And the disciples' eyes are still able to see the temple whenever Jesus is saying this. So you can imagine the impact that this conjured up. They knew the book of Daniel. They knew that there was a desecration of the temple that's had. They're, they're marveling at the beauty of the temple. Jesus says, don't marvel too long. It's going to be completely destroyed. And now he ta- starts talking about the temple's desecration, the temple's destruction. And he says, when you see the temple's desecration, tribulation is upon you. This is a specific prophetic event that the disciples surely would have known. And they would have known it for two reasons. Number one... There was a precursor that had already happened in 167 B.C. 
Um, it's something we, we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. Uh, Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah, right? It has to do with, with what happened in 167 B.C. The Assyrian king, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, shut down the temple, erected an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed pigs on the, on the Jewish altar. That was a desecration. And that led to the Maccabean revolt. And then when the Jews came in and took over the temple and rededicated it, there was only enough oil that, was, uh, that hadn't been defiled for one day to light the menorah. So they lit it and it lasted a full eight days. So the miracle is, is what they celebrate in, in, in Hanukkah. And, and so all Jews knew about the Maccabean revolt and and what was happening, and the desecration that happened in the temple. And some said this was the abomination of, of desolation. But Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, talks about something that is, that's coming in the, coming in the end. The, the disciples knew about a prophecy that was to come in the end. Daniel says, he will confirm a covenant with, with many from... From one seven in the middle of the seven, and he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So Antiochus Epiphanes did not fulfill this, and so there's still something that has to come. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The, the book of Daniel talks about this abomination of desolation three times, and Revelation talks about it at least three times. Now, the book of Daniel is a fascinating book. And we're in Mark, and we're not going to go back through, through Daniel. But, but probably one of the most fascinating prophecies in, in all of the Bible is in the book of Daniel. Daniel says there's going to be 69 weeks or 69 sevens from the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. And if you take 69 times 7, that's 483 years. Now, you know I'm not into Bible code, so if I'm telling you this, this is what the text says, all right? 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And we know, both from secular and biblical sources, when Artaxerxes reigned. He was a real king. And Nehemiah tells us that this decree happened in 445 B.C., 483 years later, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on, the, uh, on Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry. I mean, it's that specific. 69 weeks. So the Messiah is here. He's shown up like he's supposed to. But Daniel also says there's a 70th week. There's another week, another seven years that, that's going to take place. And that's what he's describing here. 69 weeks until the Messiah comes. The Messiah has come. He's here. Then there's going to be a trigger point that's going to enter into the last, the 70th week, the seven years, and that's going to come by this prophecy from Daniel, which is why Jesus mentions it. The first three and a half years, the Antichrist will rise. The second three and a half years, he will oppress. And the trigger point that, that moves it from the from bad to worse, is this abomination of desolation. 
It's something that abominates, something that blasphemes God. This, this act will blaspheme God, it will abominate God, and it will desolate and destroy at the same time. That's, that's, the, that's the term. It's an act of blasphemy that will desecrate. But I want you to notice that Jesus specifies this is a polluting period, not just a single event. Look, if you would, again, at verse 14. He says that the... Uh, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. God's temple was to be holy, and in fact, Jesus has cleansed it. He, he cleansed it from the rulers who had defiled it. He said, you've made it a, a den of thieves, a robber's den. Obviously, the worship of Zeus and the pig blood defiled it 200 years earlier. Malachi said the people of God can offer lame sacrifices and and defile their offerings. But Jesus speaks of a, a specific desecration that's coming that will stand. It, it will remain in the place that it should not be, in the, in the holy place, in the, indicating a period of time. And, and during the tribulation period, the Antichrist will gain prominence through peace and prosperity. As we've been seeing in Revelation, he will influence the world with a combined religion. He'll influence the world through a connected economy. And then halfway through, he's going to turn on that religion and he's going to desire to be worshipped himself. He'll demand to be worshipped because he'll proclaim himself to be God. And then the Antichrist will desecrate the temple that will be there by setting up an image to himself and it will remain, it will stand for a period. And that is until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, as we're getting ready to see in Revelation 19 and 20, and dethrones him himself. All of that packed into the first few words. And I have to take a long time to explain it to us because we're not Jews and we don't know the prophecy of Daniel as well as we should. But I want you to notice one of the most significant things about this verse. Look at what else it says. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand the twelve disciples are not reading the book of Mark, are they? They're hearing Jesus say this. They were listening to Jesus. It's the believers that read this letter under the inspiration of the, given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those that are alive when this happens, they're the ones who are to understand. Jesus is not telling the disciples this is going to happen right now. He's saying readers in the future that read the Gospel of Mark need to understand what's happening when they see this abomination of desolation happening during this, this period of time. God gives people who are alive and still on the earth when these horrible things are happening a roadmap to the truth. How merciful of God. And we won't be here, but this should be passed on through faithful preaching. Because when it comes, there won't be time to do anything but preserve yourself. And that's the, the second thing. After the perspective group, Jesus gives some urgent advice whenever it, it comes. Look, if you would, to what it says at the end of verse 14. Let the reader understand... 
Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountain. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or get anything out of the house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies and pray, but pray that it will not happen in the, in the winter. All of those have to do with, with urgency. Jesus says, I want you to understand... And I'm giving you a roadmap for when this happens because when it does happen, the only thing that you're going to be able to do is flee for refuge, forsake your earthly belongings, uh, feel for those who are vulnerable, the pregnant and the, the nursing, and then pray. <laughs> Those are pretty ominous warnings from the, from the Lord. They all describe urgency. It'll be a time of calamity. Flee to the mountains for refuge. This is like we say in West Virginia, head for the hills, boys. That's what he's saying. Get out. The word flee literally means to run for danger. It's the word where we get the word fugitive. Turn into a fugitive of the world. Get away. Those who are alive who read the word of Jesus, the word that he leaves for them to understand should look for refuge somewhere other than the world. They're not going to find it. You're going to be hunted. You're going to be persecuted. If you're a follower of Christ, great, horrible persecution is coming. And it was so dangerous that they should care little about earthly things. That's what verse 15 says. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or, or get anything out of the house, and the one who's in the field must not go back and get his, get his cloak. It describes two common scenes that would have happened in Palestine during that period of time. Buildings had flat roofs, so you would go up on the roof either either in uh, uh, to relax in the cool of the day or you'd sleep up there at night because it was hot. The stairway to get up there was not inside like in our houses. It's outside, so they climbed up. They went out their front door. They climbed up the stairs on the outside to the roof. When you worked in the field, you, you took off your outer garments, you took off your, 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 your jacket, if you will, because it was going to be hot, and you, you picked, you worked the field, and at the end of the day, you came back and you picked it up. And Jesus says, when they see this, this catastrophic judgment coming, when they realize this desecration of the temple is happening, they should run down the exterior stairs and not even think about going back in the house to get anything and it was so critical they should just leave their jacket even if it was going to keep you warm. Just get away. That's what he's saying. If earthly possessions are the least of these today, can you imagine what they'll, they'll be worthless for someone who's trusting Christ in the tribulation? And you should feel for those who are hindered and vulnerable. So verse 17 says, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. I can remember reading this as a young Christian, wondering if God was saying, don't get pregnant. <laughs> woe to those. You know, I don't, or wondering why God would pronounce judgment on mothers. So that's obviously not what he's saying. He's not pronouncing a woe himself like, like woe to you Pharisees, like God's condemning the Pharisees. He's saying the times will be woeful for anyone who has someone to care for, or someone who's vulnerable. You should pity them. That's what he's saying. Feel for them. A pregnant woman can't flee as easily. A nursing infant is vulnerable. And wicked men and the Antichrist will have no mercy. Think of it this way. If in our own commonwealth this past week, the Democrat governor 
could imply it's okay to kill a fully born baby when there are people to say that is repulsive and evil. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the church is gone and there's no one there to speak the truth? Can you imagine? God help us. You should pray if you're alive then and hope nothing impedes you from escaping. Look at verse 18. But pray that it may not happen in the, in the winter. Winter is the rainy season in Israel and there's no food for gleaning. So if you're fleeing, you're going to have less resources and it's harder to travel. Rivers are swollen and so on and so forth. And so Jesus says, pray. Pray you can escape because this is going to be a time like, like no, no other. Look at what he says in verse 19. It's urgent because here's what's coming. So there's a trigger point, the desecration of the temple. When you understand it, you're to get out, you're to flee, because here's what's coming in verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation, great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. That is a powerful statement. For those days, what days? When the abomination of desolation stands, when tribulation happens. Never a time like it before. Never a time like it after. From creation until now and into the future. I mean, that is a wow statement. The creation God made, by the way, the verse says, just so you don't forget who to to trust in. Now think about this. This means it's worse than anything that has ever happened up to this point, including the Noahic flood. (laughs) It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? The flood that destroyed the entire world saved Noah and his family. And Jesus says the experience will be unique. It will be a period of, of great tribulation that's... And it's obviously not happened already. I mean, this verse alone says the preterists are wrong. Nothing has ever happened up to this point or ever will happen. That's not just the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. It's something way more than that. Between creation and the end, the world is going to continue as it has from from the fall. That's what he tells the disciples to start with. They're going to see wars and bad things, and yet that's not the end. They're only the... The birth pains. It's not the birth. What's coming is the birth, and it'll be great. The way a woman feels during pregnancy is not pleasant. Now, I don't know that by first-hand experience, but my wife has told me five times at least. And I listen when she tells me when she's pregnant. And when the contractions start, she may think that is horrible. But ask any one of them here today, did you notice a difference whenever the baby was actually born from the contractions? Did it hurt worse then and you might get smacked, right? Of course it was different. Jesus says what's happening now are are like Braxton Hicks contractions. And what's coming is the actual birth of a final period called tribulation, and it will be unique. It, it, It will be... It will be unlike anything that you have ever seen. It will be great. It will be unique. And 
Praise God, it will be controlled. Look at verse 20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days... Who shortened the days? Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And while the Antichrist will rise and the need to flee will be urgent, and the calamity will be greater than anything in any other time in the world, look who is still reigning on the throne. Hallelujah. And look at His mercy toward all men, toward all flesh. And notice that it comes because of His specific mercy for for His own. He says during the tribulation period, it, it will be controlled, and that's mercy to all life, but... But that happened because of his love for his elect. Notice, he says the reason that he'll shorten the days. The Lord is in control. He shortens the days. No life, that's no flesh, that's all flesh, all life, gets the benefit. But it's for the sake of the elect. And just in case you're confused about the definition of that word, he adds whom he chose. So there's no way to miss it. God limits the tribulation period because if He hadn't, even His own people wouldn't make it. That's what He's saying. And so all life gets the benefit of God's grace to His people. Just like today. The sun rises on the just as well as the unjust. It's amazing. Common grace when He's even pouring out judgment. Mercy when He's even pouring out judgment on the unbelieving world. And God will have a people during the tribulation period and all of them will believe and not one of them will be lost. And God will control that period for them. Look, if you would, at verse 21 and 22 because he describes what will happen to everybody else. Everybody else is going to face powerful delusions. Powerful delusions. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise. And Jesus has already said that before, but but now he adds this, and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, Jesus has already told the disciples these kind of counterfeits are going to be, are going to be around. They're, they're going to be there. I mean, he says all the way back in, uh, in, in where? Over here in verse uh, um, uh, 6, 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, nations will rise against Nathan, nations. Uh, people will, will mislead you. They're going to come in my name saying, I'm he. He's already talked about that Second Peter chapter 2 says, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, there will be false teachers in the New Testament. Second Peter and Jude describe what to look for with, in false teachers. Paul says, don't forget to check behind the pulpit whenever you're looking for false teachers. He warned the Ephesian elders that ravenous wolves were going to arise from, from among them. But what's different during this time is the delusions that they'll bring. Verse 22, they're going to show signs and wonders. They're going to be able to do pseudo-miracles. 
fueled by Satan himself. And the world will be deceived. And the world will believe them. And verse 22 says that they'll come in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Meaning that it's not possible. Now think about this. Jesus is contrasting the security of the, of the elect, of his people, with the deluding power of false teachers. I mean, that's the contrast that, that he's making here. The signs and wonders, the miracles are going to come, and he's contrasting that, the power against his keeping power. Their deluding power against his keeping power. Do you see that? Now, how secure is a believer? Really secure. <laughs> no man can pluck you out of, the, out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can condemn the one who God justifies. There is nothing or anyone more secure than God's people. But the powerful delusions during the tribulation period will be so strong that even God's people would be tempted to believe them if it were not for God's preserving power. That's what he's saying there. They won't, but the world will. Why? Because they'll want to believe them. The world will want to believe them. Listen, I saw reruns whenever I was young, so I don't know that I was alive when Flip Wilson was on TV. How many of you remember Flip Wilson? Yeah. What was his famous line? The devil made me do it. Don't blame the devil for your unbelief. Don't blame the devil for the deluding influences. He can delude, but they believe because they, they want to believe. It comes from their own heart. They suppress the truth that God gives them in unrighteousness right now. Unbelievers do that on a regular basis. That's the agenda. Suppress the truth, undermine the truth, silence the truth. I mean, that, that, that's what's happening in the world. And don't blame God either, for that matter. He, he desires them to be saved. I mean, he's even writing in this book, let, understand what's happening so you'll, you'll turn to Jesus whenever this, this happens. He sends out preachers. He's got me standing before you today. He writes down things so they can understand in verse 14. There's not a single person in heaven who is there because of anything but, but divine grace, and there's not a single person in hell who is not there by their own choice and rejection of God. They believe the lie because their hearts are inclined to. It's just the devil gives them assistance. And it will be strong. And while God promises to preserve His people, we have a responsibility as well. And that's the final verse in verse 23. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Better than the Weather Channel? Better than Mike and Mike in the morning? Better than all of the, the Federal Reserve chairmen's combined? The God of heaven himself tells us everything beforehand. And so he says, take heed, behold, I have told you in advance. What is happening? The faithful preparation for its arrival, Jesus says. And here is your, your application. Jesus says, take heed and trust your Bibles. 
Where does He tell us everything in advance? Visions and dreams and... No. The inscripturated Word of God. That's where He tells us. Right here. What we've been walking through. Verse by verse. Line by line. This is what those who know the Lord are supposed to do until this happens and what those who will know the Lord when this happens, this is what they're supposed to do. This is a command. They're to take heed. It's a warning to be alert. And Jesus tells future believers who will be in this world they need to know their Bibles so they won't be misled and they can trust their Bibles because it's from Him, God of heaven, accurate prophecy. And He says the same thing to you and me today. Know your Bible and trust your Bible. You're Christian. Do you know your Bible? Do you know it well enough not to be deluded and deceived? Are you pursuing equipping? Do you just look for verses or do you look to the Bible just to confirm what you already believe? Or do you say, I don't care what I believe. I just want to know what the Bible says. Do you really know? I hope you do. Many of you do. That's why you're here. This is a wonderful church. Loves the Word. If you were cut, would you bleed bibline, as Charles Spurgeon said? Or are you asleep, just drifting and coasting along, hoping, hoping that something hits you on Sunday morning whenever you come? I hope not. Do you trust your Bible? I mean, really trust it? When hardship comes, when your world is rocked, do you trust the words of God? I understand it's hard. I've been rocked. I've been rocked off of my off of my mooring. But after drifting, you come back to the rock that's higher than than I. Do you trust it or you just trust it when and then live the way you want? Say you trust it and live the way you want. The B I B L E. Yes, that's the book for me, right? I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Do you know the second verse? The B-L-O-O-D that Jesus shed for me. Christ paid the price, our sacrifice, the B-L-O-O-D. You can't know your Bible or trust your Bible until you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. All of the answers to all of your problems, all of the information that you need for past, present, and future are in this book. But they're behind a wall. You're separated from them. You can't even understand it because of your sin. And yet, praise Jesus, there's a door in that wall. And that door is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll come by Him and Him alone, You'll repent. You'll turn from, man, I'm, I'm done living my life the way that, that I've been living. I'm done playing God. I'm done thinking I know what I need to do. I repent. I turn from that, and I, I turn to Him. I trust in what, what God has declared to me, that Jesus is the Christ. He died for my sin in my place. And I'm going to start following Him. If you'll do that, then a whole world will open up to you. And a whole other world, which is yet to come. Christian, know your Bible. Trust your Bible. And if you don't, 
Know the Lord. Trust Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.